This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We are live at Columbia Business School in Morningside Heights, sort of the upper west west side, upper upper west side. It is. It is. It is. And of course, many uh, divisions within the university, but that of course includes the Columbia Business School. And we caught up with Dr. Costis McGlaris. He was named the 16th Dean of the Business School in June of this year. He's a longtime professor uh, at the school, award-winning scholar. He pioneered the development of the school's technology and analytics curriculum. And we talked to him about the current MBA and his position. I have been embraced with a lot of enthusiasm from my colleagues, and uh, we're actually working on some very interesting initiatives here at the school, both to sort of improve and change education, and also sort of talk to our business leaders that have been sort of flocking in to meet the new dean and see how they can be involved and help. Uh, so I think it has been uh, exciting first three months. Uh, that seems like a very long day. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dean McLaris, I mean, talk to us about the MBA because there's so much of a conversation right now about the cost of education, right? And I'm curious, how do you see the MBA of the future? How do you kind of justify, you know, the education with the cost? Yeah. Uh, we're constantly looking at the cost of the education and we're always trying to take cost out of the equation. Uh, we're also working on providing good financial aid uh, to our students uh, to uh, essentially uh, facilitate that investment uh, on their part. Uh, and we're really focusing on the value of the degree. Uh, so I think actually uh, because business is undergoing quite a bit of change right now, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to innovate in the value that we offer to our students. Mm. And in fact, I actually believe that uh, the, the MBA degree now is a fantastic investment, both in terms of time and return, uh, simply because uh, you, know, you need new skills to succeed in practice, uh, and that's what we're striving to do here. So I actually think that the degree is pretty robust, and I think, in fact, because of the change we're undergoing, it's actually more valuable now than it potentially was five, ten years ago. So as those business leaders, especially here in New York City, alum include James Gorman from Morgan Stanley, he's going to be with us later on. Yes. When he and, and his uh, friends and, and fellow alum are, are visiting with you, what are they asking you for that may be different than what they've been getting in the past in terms of what you're teaching or the types of students that you you're uh, turning out. Yeah, so I think when you talk to business leaders, uh, you realize that they're encountering uh, two things. Uh, First of all, technology, data analytics is really changing the way their business is being transacted. Uh, Mm. So they they leave that for quite some time. They also understand that the nature of the MBA jobs, the types of jobs that our graduates are going to do, is itself changing uh, over time. So they want to see in what way are we going to best prepare students in order to really participate in that digital future. So they ask, what are we doing in the curriculum? What are we doing in experiential learning? Uh, How do we bring MBA students together with engineering students so that they learn how to collaborate because that's what they're going to do when they go uh, out to work? So these are the types of things we talk about. I'm also curious how much you talk about the U.S.-China trade spat and what that has done to students who want to come to the Columbia Business School to get a degree, but they're nervous about what does this mean? Can I stay in the country? Can I create a company? You know, so I'm just curious if you're seeing pushback or a decline in students from overseas that, you know, want to apply. 
So for now, at Columbia, we haven't actually experienced that. Uh, no, no change at all? Almost, uh, almost no change. We continue to have about 40% international students, about two-thirds of them, about 60% of them that just graduated that wanted to stay in the U.S., actually found jobs in the U.S., and of the 40% that left, I think a lot of them actually wanted to go back in different areas of the world. Having said that, you know, our service economy here in the U.S. depends on really high-skilled human capital. So it, this is a problem that we need to solve, not just for business education, but for essentially training any type of high-skilled labor uh, that we would like to retain in the country. And hopefully we'll get to have uh, the dialogue and then uh, move uh, to a solution. Well, I'm curious, and that's where I wanted to go. Are you having a dialogue with folks in Washington about this issue? There, are, there is some dialogue that is going on, yes. Uh, so you know, But er- early steps. Uh, I mean, people understand that this is uh, an opportunity for the U.S. to actually do better, and people understand the value of high-skilled uh, human capital, which is how we actually help build uh, companies, start companies, create new ideas, new technology. So, you know, they, they recognize the value, and I think hopefully we'll keep talking about it and resolve it. Only about 30 seconds left, but if there was one single change you would foresee making in the curriculum, a new class, a new area of study, what, what could we expect to see from good, Columbia? Good. So we, we've done a lot of work already to integrate technology, data, analytics into the curriculum, and we're going to continue doing that. I think what we need to do now is introduce uh, courses that tell our students how to better manage and lead in an environment where uh, they have to collaborate and co-work with engineers. So it used to be that six MBA graduates get in the room and solve a business problem. And, you know, if you want to visualize what they're going to be doing next, is they're going to get in a room and they're going to be two MBA graduates, two data scientists, two software developers. So they need to both understand what these people do But then they need to be able to understand how to contribute, manage, and lead in that environment. And, of course, that was Dr. Costis McGlaris, uh, the dean of the Columbia Business School, uh, named in June of this year, took over uh, in July. But I think it was interesting what he said at the end, and I feel like we hear that more and more from the CEOs that we talk to about you have to get everybody in the room, the engineers, uh, the finance people, the management people, the marketing people, to really make the smartest decisions today. Right, and one of the things he said that I found interesting as well is this notion that, yeah, you're going to make a decision, and then you have to communicate it, and you have to communicate it to a much broader group of people who are coming from dis- different aspects of the company, so right. you need to be, if not fluent, at least conversant in all of these different aspects. So you do wonder uh, how that is going to change. I mean, it's a discussion that we have with deans across the business school universe. All right, coming up, a special treat. Morgan Stanley, of course, one of the venerable U.S. banks. James Gorman is the bank's chairman and CEO. He's also a Columbia Business School grad, and he is our guest in in-depth conversation with James Gorman of Morgan Stanley. That's next. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We are live at Columbia Business School. We're between classes here, as you can see if you're watching us on television. And a guy who has wandered this campus for years and is back is James Gorman. He is the CEO and chairman of Morgan Stanley and you were with some students uh, just a few minutes ago. Did it take you back to your early days? Yeah, it made me jealous. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> apart from the sirens, right? But uh, yeah, I was at Columbia in the mid 80s, and uh, it was, you know, it was a great experience. So it was, it was fun. I just did a lunch and learn class with about 150 kids, and they are kids. Uh, they weren't born when I was at business school here. 
What do you want to know from them when you're talking with them? Because I feel like the world and so many different industries, your industry also going through lots of changes. What do you want to hear from them? Well, it's what kind of culture, what kind of company they're really looking to work at. I mean, what, what, what matters to this generation different from my generation? You know, I grew up uh, at a time when Solomon Brothers and Drexel and, you know, that was all the rage on Wall Street. It's a very sort of hyper-intense environment. I mean, these uh, young folks, they're much more interested in social impact, um, in the values of the organization, and, and just trying to share and exchange how we think about our role in society as, a, as a, obviously, a global bank. Well, let's go all the way back to your arrival here uh, on campus. This was... Do a we big, have to? That yeah. was so yeah. long ago. <laughs> but it was a big move for you. I mean, yeah. it, it was defining uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. What do you remember most about arriving, and then what did you take? Because you notably? came from Australia, and you were a lawyer already, right? Yeah. I, ca- I came here to sort of change careers. What I remember most is the interest rate on my student loan Yeah, was, well, was 24%. It? Oh which I think is a world record, right? <laughs> and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because America welcomed me to come here to learn, to grow. And, and I just, it was unbelievable. I arrived on a very hot August day, August the 2nd, 1985. It was that classic New York sweltering heat. And it just, it was all new. It was just, it was so exciting. And the campus, uh, this university, which is, you know, extraordinary, um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have been happier, honestly, to, to be given that chance. And that's why I think, you know, immigration, uh, welcoming foreigners, giving them an opportunity to contribute. And I'm still here. Right. You know, 30 plus years later. Because you had an experience living in International House, right. I believe. And mm-hmm. so many people are exposed to many different cultures. I mean, you were living in it in, in a lot of ways. How, how did that affect sort of your worldview? I used to play uh, chess every Sunday night with um, a Danish guy who listened to Frank Sinatra with candles on, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in the dark. And it was, uh, so, you know, and, and one of my closest friends, uh, I was a guy from Lyon in France and another guy from Morocco. Uh, so you, you, you learn to experience the cultures and the diversity that this world has. And one of the great things about a university like this is it brings people like that together who are all motivated. They've all, you know, they're obviously... Uh, they're talented, uh, and they want to move forward. So I, I, I thought it was a tremendous experience. Well, having said that, James, I do wonder what you think about kind of the pushback that we're getting um, from the current administration when it comes to folks coming in from other countries to study here, maybe start companies here, but it's not that happy an environment or, an, or a hospitable environment for them right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, this country has always been a country of immigrants, and uh, celebrating and welcoming those immigrants and seeing how they've contributed to this society here. I mean, it's, it's been one of the great elixirs of what's made America different is most countries people are trying to move out of to get a better life. This is one of the few countries in the world, and Australia was like that, where a lot of people are trying to get into. And I think welcoming those immigrants, providing opportunities for them, obviously having sensible border control, which I support. Mm -hmm. People shouldn't come here illegally, right? I didn't. You come through passport control. You earn your way into this country. You set the test. I became a citizen. I mean, you do it the right way. But having as many people as you can bringing talent into the U.S., I think has been one of the great hallmarks of the success of the last century. When you think about talent as well, you know, it used to be a much more 
prescribed path it feels like out of business school. You went to a big consulting company. You went to Wall Street. You know, you talked about hearing from the students wanting to have a social impact. What do you draw in terms of student and talent from a business school like Columbia? And and what's the case you make to them for working on Wall Street right now? Well, there, there are there are great careers on Wall Street. There always have been. I mean, things ebb and flow. I think the largest recruiter. I don't know for sure, but I think Amazon might be the largest or one of the largest at the business school now. So at different points, the sort of cadence and flow and focus changes as society is changing and as business opportunities are changing. Uh, listen, Wall Street is highly sophisticated, uh, very intellectually interesting, very dynamic because you're in the markets. As you guys know, this is what you do. Um, so for a lot of people, not everybody, uh, for a lot of people, it remains an extremely attractive uh, career option. So let's talk about the markets. Mm. You're in it. We obviously watch it day in and day out. There's so many big macro stories that are out there, uh, whether it's Brexit, whether it's U.S.-China trade. How do you see the market, the global market environment right now? Well, you know, it's, it's a conundrum. At, at one level, we've got record low unemployment. Uh, we do still have global growth. Uh, the U.S. economy, the most important economy in the world, is uh, performing strongly. China is still performing strongly. Um, Europe, Europe is obviously mixed, but it's been mixed for two decades now. Um, so at one level, the fundamentals are actually quite strong. Uh, at the other level, the sense of confidence, there isn't the confidence, and there's a sense of inevitability we're at the end of a cycle. You know, it, it doesn't have to be. You don't, I mean, statistically, there is a recession every seven years, right? Each year you begin with a 15% chance of recession, but it doesn't have to be. You know, in Australia, they haven't had a recession for 28 years in a row. Right. So right now... Why is now, there so much pressure, though, then, on the Federal Reserve to continue cutting rates? Does that make sense? Well, because the economy is slowing. Okay. The economy is slowing. And, you know, the job of the Fed is to sort of balance monetary policy with economic outlook and fix, fiscal policy. And, you know, they should feather rates. Obviously, when the economy is getting hot, their job is to raise rates, slow it down, and, and the reverse. So, you know, I've supported the latest uh, Fed rate cut, and I suspect they'll do one or two more. But then it's time for a pause and really absorb this because the problem with cutting is it's one of the few tools you've got. So if you give it away too easily, what do you have if we have a real problem? I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, sort of squaring some of the different elements out there and especially businesses that certainly seem more cautious with a consumer that isn't showing much signs of, of caution at all. How do you square those things as you talk to your customers and what do you see out there that, that could help explain that dichotomy as it were? Well, we, you know, we're, we're in a bit of an echo chamber. If you're a business leader, you go to business leadership meetings, we all talk to each other, we sort of, you know, we bounce off each other. So a little bit of it is, gee, we must be at the end of the cycle. The Fed's cutting rates, we must be about to have a recession. By the way, we've had an inverted yield curve, which yeah. has been highly predictive of, of a recession. So there's some hard evidence that things are more likely to slow down than accelerate at this point. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So as executives whose job is to think about capital investment over multi-years, you would be prudent in being cautious at this point. There's nothing wrong with that. Consumers aren't yet experiencing that. They've got very cheap debt. Housing is starting to recover. Their consumer credit, apart from student loans, sadly, uh, is in very strong shape. So the consumer balance sheet is still very strong. And that's why it's lagging where the corporate balance sheet and corporate attitude is. Are there implications, though, from having rates at such a low level for such a protracted time? I mean, I, it's, it's all about finding equilibrium between yeah. economic growth and, and the cost of money. So, I mean, there are only implications if it creates a bubble, right? That's a, 
cheap money eventually will create a bubble. We're a long way from that now. You don't see any of that? No, I'm seeing no bubbles. And how do you manage your business, given all of those different inputs and, and outputs that i Where do you hire? Where do you maybe stay steady? Uh, where do you invest across the, the empire of Morgan Stanley? Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought about it that way. But, uh, yeah, we're just a simple business. Um, you know, firstly, we're very long the U.S. Our wealth management business is... I think 90 plus percent US um, and at least half our securities business here. So that's a good thing, right? This is an $18 trillion economy, strongest economy in the world, most important economy in the world. I'm happy to be long the US. Uh, We're obviously, you know, we've been aggressively building our Asia business, which is now I think 14% or so of the company. Uh, With the trade talks, things have slowed clearly across uh, parts of Asia. Uh, So that's been played out. But, But our job is to try and look past one, three, six-month hiccups or slowdowns. Our job, certainly my job, is to think out five-plus years. And, you know, traders are thinking every five minutes. I'm trying to think five years. And Can right you do now, that in this environment, though, because it does feel like we, we've been going back and forth on, let's say, you've got to. trade. You've got to. We've been around for 85 years. I yeah. mean, we're, we're managing uh, 2.6 trillion of people's money. They're not all selling into the market on one day and all buying on the next day. No, things things actually move in in small increments. It's it's more things like the public markets and companies going public that you know or M and A transactions happening or not. But most of our core businesses are relatively immune to what's going on right now. You wouldn't see the impact on our wealth management business greatly at all. Well, let's talk about the public markets mm. because it's been quite a year for. Gave you an for co- there, you right? really did. You <laughs> just like drive the truck right up there. Uh, I mean, the public markets have really been something to watch, to, to say the least, and especially talk about cognitive dissonance. You know, between sort of private market valuations and public market valuations, what do you see going on there? Why is that happening? Well, on the other hand, the public markets are record highs. Right. Right. So where is the dissonance? Is the dissonance the, is in the IPO markets. In, in some ways, yeah. you know, some of these unicorn, mega unicorn companies going public. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's, there's uh, rounds of fundraising. Companies have tended to go public later and done, you know, four, five, six rounds. Um, with that comes some risk, obviously, because you've got a lot of investors who've come in relatively late before you go to full public uh, Market, and I think we've seen that in some, you know, some of these companies that look like they're going to go public now, lower than what the last couple of rounds were raising. Um, that's unusual. We haven't seen that for a long time. Um, it's also a function. There was some very frothy money floating around mm-hmm. in the early rounds. Has that changed? Do you think? Do you think the private money's get, getting smarter at this I think point? The market's pretty efficient. Yeah. You know, these people aren't stupid who, who, are, who are making these investments. These are very savvy people, and. And listen, this is, this is sort of the corrective mechanisms that occur. They see a couple of companies go public at lower than whatever their last valuation was. That's a good corrective mechanism. That's okay. Back to the bubble question. That yeah. starts, that pinpricks the bubbles that are out there. But some of those that have come public this year, whether it's an Uber, whether it's a Lyft, you know, came out with a bang, but then it pulled back. So it's the market telling you, well, wait a minute, you weren't worth that much? Or, or what is it? Does it take some time with these companies that have been around for a while that are still not profitable, yeah. but have been around for a long time? How do you make sense of that? Uh, you know, the, uh, the market can be very stupid in the short run. Um, in the medium term, it occasionally gets things wrong. In the long term, you're the one who's stupid, right? right? So, uh, you know, when, when Facebook... time will tell. Yeah, totally. When Facebook went public, um, I went on 
TV. I can't remember if it was with you guys or not. Let's, let's just, just say, let's it say it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> obviously, it was. And you know, I said uh, this is a great, great new company that has been formed by incredibly innovative people who've created something that didn't exist before. That should be celebrated. The fact it traded at a value in the weeks and months after it went public below what people wanted on the day of the issue. Okay, that happens. But look at it. Give it time. Give it a year, and now. It's, it's something like six times the valuation, you know, in a relatively short period of time. So we should all wish to have Facebook's problem. Right. So I'd, I'd, give, this, I'd give this a little bit of time. I'm not, I wouldn't be too, too wound up about it. Are you seeing more issues hmm? that your team, are you talking to more people who want to bring more companies to public? How active is it right now? Uh, I, are, they, are they not bringing them public because of this? I think it's making people more realistic about valuations you know for some of these unicorns i think there's a little reality check has gone into the system and that's that's okay this is what the market does you know Mm -hmm. back to my point the market in the long run gets it right and the short run is how you find opportunities when you think about this uh to maybe overstate a little bit this negative yield world that that we're living in how does that change your view of the market? How does it change the way you may deploy some assets and may deploy some of your teams around the world? Well, I, I, firstly, I've been very surprised at where rates are. I'll just say that up front. I thought the 10-year at this point, I'd expected by the end of this year, the 10-year would be around 3%. I, would, I was dead wrong. Okay, um, So, you know, a negative yield curve has been historically highly predictive of recession. Sure. But as Janet Yellen, former Chair Yellen, said... Uh, it's not necessarily so. It doesn't necessarily lead to a recession. Uh, so how does it change our business? It, it doesn't. You know, we're, we run our business based upon what we see going on in the broader economy rather than where rates mm-hmm. are trading on any particular day. And I think in the last week you've seen the 10-year recover about 10, 15 basis points. So, you know, we'll see. You know, I'm curious, too, about the role of technology in finance. We see it increasingly so. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the incorporation of it at Morgan Stanley and where you see it kind of all going, because it's certainly a big part of what they're being te- you know, taught at the Columbia Business School, and more and more so, whether it's algorithms, whether it's yeah. enge- engineers coming in and with coding. Where do you see it all playing out? It's interesting. I just came from our uh, monthly risk committee meeting to our meeting this morning, and uh, we had a whole section on electronic trading and um, what we're doing in that space and how it's bleeding from equities into the fixed income space. Um, you know, the technology has been driving Wall Street, dirty little secret, for a very long time. You know, we set up our first electronic trading businesses in the mid-90s. And it's like everybody suddenly discovered technology because of fintech. Um, there's a lot of innovation going on in the fintech sector, for sure. And right. we are partnering with a lot of those companies. But we are, you know, we spend upwards of $4 billion on technology. We have centers of competence in machine learning, robotics, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, big data management. Uh, obviously, our cyberspace is huge. So we, we have the resources and I think the intellectual horsepower to be at the forefront of a lot of the new technology development, but not all of it we want to do in-house. Right. So we're actively looking to partner with large and small companies, whether it's in software development, uh, in data management in particular, and, you know, embrace it. So it's, it's very much a part of everything we do. Digital currencies as well? Uh, we, yeah, we're helping uh, clients uh, hedge and manage their exposures to digital currencies. We haven't been, um, you know, we haven't set up a digital business unit uh, focused on, you know, the various forms of cryptos per se. Because? Much more interested in the blockchain technology. Okay. I don't know. It, it's just another form of stored value to me. And I'm, I'm you know, people... I. Maybe I'm dead wrong about this. I've been quite conservative on this for a long time. 
um, I see much more value around the blockchain technology supporting the currency than the currency itself. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned sort of various partnerships, especially on the fintech side. From a competitive standpoint, where do you see the most competition across your lines of business at this point? Ooh, um, well, in, in wealth management, clearly, yeah. you know, the online space, but, but that's not new. I mean, Schwab and E-Trade and Meritrade have been around an awfully long time. They've been doing online you know, digital business, it was just called something different, which was direct brokerage, right? right? It had a different name. Uh, so that's always been competitive. I think um, uh, in the asset management space, obviously the challenge of a lot of the package ETF indexing versus the, uh, you know, traditional long-only active managed. But a lot of our businesses are very complex, require global capability, you know, hedging, uh, you know, a currency exposure in Japan, uh, being long certain rate securities in you know Australia. I mean, we're 24 hours. It's a lot of it is. Um, it's it's not that it's not challenged competitively, but most of our challenge comes from our traditional competitors, the big banks. James, I'm always curious. You know, we spend our time so much talking about Fed policy, yield curves, U.S.-China trade policy. What is it that you folks at Morgan are spending so much time having conversations about? What is it that we're not talking about that really deserves a little bit more attention? Leadership, culture, um, creating an organization where diverse employees don't feel included, but feel not just included, but feel they belong. That's something I felt very strongly about. The whole diversity inclusion discussion implies somebody invited you into the room. No, I want you to belong. It's your room. So we talk about a lot of the qualities that get at uh, do employees respect your institution, want to be part of your institution, want to make their careers and lives there. The, 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 the macro stuff, it blows, right? I mean, okay, rates were 2.5%, now they're 1.5%. Is Morgan Stanley fundamentally changing its strategy because of that? Of course not. But if we can't attract really talented, committed people who do things the right way, have the right values, then, then we're going nowhere. Mm. So I'm very fo- – once your strategy is in place, and I think we have a really sound strategy, it's all about reaffirming the cultural values and putting the leadership in place – for the next 10 and 15 years who can drive those values. Are we making inroads? I want to ask about diversity because I feel like we've been talking about diversity, parity, women, you know, issues on Wall Street for a long, long time. And we're still struggling to get them. And and we will be talking about it for a long, long time. I'd I'd share one fact with you. Uh, This year, and this wasn't by design, it was an outcome. Uh, This year, for the first time ever, more than 50% of our intern class, which is 1,000 interns globally, were women. First time ever. Uh, our head of China is a woman, head of Europe, Middle East, Africa is a woman, co-head of investment banking is a woman, the head of our bank is a woman. I mean, we have senior leadership women in multiple roles, but are they representative of the role of women in society? No, they're not. Right. So we've, 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 we've made steps, uh, but it starts with the pipeline at the beginning and then finding ways in which you can keep those folks through all the transitions we make in life have uh, terrific careers at Morgan Stanley. Are those discussions and those efforts becoming easier or harder given the political climate we're in? We live in a pretty, I think it's fair to say, divisive time, uh, a hyper-political time in a lot of ways. How do you cut through all that to make these sorts of decisions? I think from a diversity perspective, no. I think from what is the role of the corporation society, yes. I think we're being called as CEOs into the public debate much more. We're... we're our, our employees want us to express opinions on a wide range of issues, and it's very difficult because you've got to you, you 
you know, we, we all have personal. I mean, I'm a, I'm a voter, right? I'm a citizen. I have opinions on all these issues, and it can't be just what James Gorman thinks. I'm not the company. It's what, what is for the greater good of the whole organization. And I think what a lot of companies are now struggling with is what is our role in society? And this is why the statement came out recently from the CEOs of the Roundtable, right. uh, which was basically to embrace the broader stakeholders that we have. You can Listen, you can be a bank and run it only for shareholder value. But if society turns against you and nationalizes your bank, that didn't work out so well. Right? <laughs> right. So I've always believed you have to operate in the ecosystem with respect for everybody in that ecosystem. But what's interesting is and we had a very smart conversation with, um, like we're having right now, but with another individual in the financial community, but talking about, you know, not everybody has the same access to education, you know, and I do wonder, you know, what that has done in terms of creating the gaps within our society. So how do we deal with that well there i mean there are gaps in 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 every society and not everybody starts off with the same access i mean it's you know you're like i was lucky i was born in melbourne to the family i was born with and given the education i was given that's why i'm here um so you you know there's no all of us know there's no magic one there are inequalities um but they feel deeper than ever before um, is that wrong i think the gap between the most successful uh and the least is wider. And I think the minimum wage pressure for the last 30 years has been devastating uh, for a lot of people. I think there are a hell of a lot of people in this country and around the world who have not participated in the economic expansion of the last three decades, which is why the rise of populism has happened. On the other end, nationalism has happened. Anti-globalization has happened. Anti-immigration has happened. It must be somebody's fault if I didn't get ahead. Right. Who's that somebody? And at the end of the day, what a lot of people have decided that somebody is the politicians, which is why Brexit has happened and so on. So, you know, I think that was a pretty good warning shot to the power elite, so-called in the world, that you can't leave behind large parts of society and expect that to not have ramifications. Do you expect that that's going to change anytime soon or the power elite listening? I think this, I think that, yeah, I think there's a pendulum swinging. Um, and I think I think there is I think there's some pretty healthy discussions. And back to the CEO roundtable, you know, 200 or so of the top CEOs in the country all signed us, and it was you know this wasn't controversial. This is something we feel and we wanted to express to everybody out there working for our companies or or participating with them. Last word, 20 seconds. Yeah, I'm just thinking. You know, the next batch of MBAs and students. What would be your advice? Uh, focus on the job you're paid to do. A lot of young folks come into companies like ours and they're trying to focus on the next job all the time, trying to figure out how to get ahead. You get ahead by doing what you're paid to do really well. Right. You do that, you succeed. All right. Advice. James Gorman, uh, a Thank real you. treat to catch up with you here at your alma mater, Columbia mm-hmm. Business School. Class of 87? 87. That was I an know, interesting old, time. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great time. <laughs> this is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. And of course, New York Fashion Week is underway. So we've got the perfect guest to talk to. Uh, it is about retail. It's about the luxury retail market. Federico Marchetti is founder of Ux, now chairman and CEO of the Ux Net-A-Porte Group. He is Columbia Business School class of 1999. Welcome. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about, I love talking to folks like the, you because you come out of business school and you started Ukes like right away, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about what was it that made you want to do it on your own versus maybe go work with a big financial firm or a consulting firm. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, first of all, I'm so 
happy to be here now. It's my university. And, um, you have I fond memories about being here. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, it was fun. It was fun to be in New York. <laughs> Sounds like there's some stories <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> and um, no, I decided to take my MBA at Columbia because uh, I wanted to take one year and a half uh, um, off uh, in order to think about uh, my entrepreneurial idea and uh, to, to, to become a good entrepreneur. And um, before I worked at Lehman for, for, for three years, 94, 97, and I knew that I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to become an entrepreneur since I was a child. And so coming here at Columbia was perfect because uh, Columbia gave me the foundation and the, the tools right. to become a modern entrepreneur. And, um, and as soon as uh, I, I went back to Milan, I started uh, with the business plan of Yux. Uh, that was my, 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 my idea in 99, so 20 years ago. And, and what did you see that sort of gave you that idea? What was the market opportunity that you spotted sort of along the way that, that you wanted to fill? Because you're um, way ahead of your time in terms of, terms of online retail and certainly yeah, online luxury retail. I was among the first, yeah. let's put it in this way. And um, my, uh, at, at Columbia, I studied, uh, for example, my favorite class was retailing because I love the customers. And retailing with Professor Alan Kane was like an amazing class. I remember also like that I interacted with uh, Michael Drexel, that he was a lecturer, and uh, we mailed each other like an analysis about the Italian market where, because Gap at that time yeah. he was the CEO of Gap, he was not in Italy. So I mean the exposure that as a young student that you get in, with M Mickey Drexel that yeah. he was like a hero now for retailing, and then I took uh, entrepreneurship classes. I did my, my business plan about um, a fast food environment with slow food as a content ah. and actually it's a concept that uh, has developed recently yeah. very talk about ahead of your time I mean that's we're very, seeing very a lot of that right now but then I realized that I didn't want to be to be behind the counter and preparing uh, <laughs> food for the, the 20 years and so as an Italian going back to Italy after my MBA uh, the competitive advantage of the Italian are like the three F's now it's food fashion and furniture and so food food without furniture fashion was probably the, 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 the right thing. And so what I, what I uh, basically, you, you can say that I had a vision in the sense that I thought that fashion and luxury one day was going to converge with the internet. In 99, they were completely two opposite worlds. Yeah. They didn't talk each other. They didn't like each other. So my role in the last 20 years has been uh, as a trade union, as a link between these two worlds. And But now... But who would have thought, Federico, that you would spend, you know, thousands of dollars for a high-end piece and buy it online? Like, it's pretty remarkable. I, I invented Ux as the shop of my dream. Yeah. And so I'm always, more than a C chairman and CEO, you should call me customer number one. Yeah. And What you all, wanted. All the strategies, all that, is like I put myself in the shoes of the customers. And I thought that um, it was, why not? I mean, like, and not only like bags and shoes, but also ready to wear now, which could, can be counterintuitive. Um, and then in 2016, after having convinced all the fashion brands to go online in the last uh, 15 years, in 2016, I thought that maybe it was time also to convince the hard luxury and uh, so watches and jewelry. And now, like, the price is... It's not a limit. So, like, right. there's no limit for pricing. So, we are selling uh, watches and jewelry over $200,000. Uh, 
luxury seems to be having something of a, a moment right now. And, and we were just talking last week with mm-hmm. the author of a new book uh, called Fashionopolis. It's basically essentially sort of rejecting the idea, the economics of fast fashion. You know, this idea of, you know, the, the opposite, essentially, uh, of what you do. Do you feel that that society is moving toward a, a place where it values things a, a little bit more and and thinks about all aspects uh, of a product? Really going back to quality versus quantity yeah. to some extent. Yeah, I mean, listen, when I was here at Columbia, like when I started to put together the business plan of Ux, I always wanted to create something that was sustainable and mm. it was um, good. And, um, and, and that's why, uh, like, very early on, in 2008 to 2009, I launched Uxygen. That was a, a complete sustainable fashion uh, area within Ux. And now with Net-A-Porte, we have Net-Sustain. Right. Basically, we are showcasing all these uh, great designers uh, launching a sustainable fashion. There's lots of demand for that. And uh, that's what the customers want. 2009, I was probably just a little bit early. Right. Now we are perfectly on time, but it has been like 10 years that we are developing. So we have a huge advantage compared to everybody else. We'd be remiss not to ask you, because I think, you know, we were just talking with uh, James Gorman, of course, about what the economic outlook is, what the market outlook is. What are you seeing in terms of your customer? Are they still shopping? Is there any sign in terms of slowing down, picking up? What are you seeing, you know, around the globe in terms of your consumer, your global consumer? I'm in an industry that, uh, I mean, it's 20 years old, so it's young. And it's still growing, and it's growing fast. So I'm in, a, in an industry that which is good to be in. Yeah. And uh, I don't see any sign of slowing down. Um, also because uh, many brands, uh, they are embracing online only recently. And so there's a lot still to do in order to develop these brands online. And you feel like your core customer still feels a level of confidence around spending money and investing in you know, higher-end uh, luxury goods? Our customers are very different from the fast fashion customers. Yes. So like, they like the investment dressing. I mean, like, uh, I love to read the customer comments. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. And I love when they say, I, I, I gave the item that I bought on Etaporte or Yux or Mr. Porter or the Outnet, I gave it to my daughter, I gave right. it to my son, because it's quality. Yeah. It's luxury. And, uh, and uh, many things, uh, basically, they are forever. Right. Well, it's fascinating to talk to you, and I know more and more technology is coming into what you're doing at Net-A-Porte and individualization. I mean, that's really where we're seeing, just got about 10 seconds, I mean, that's where retail is going, right, in terms of being very individualized and personalized. Yeah, like we are a company which, which is like 50% fashion and 50% technology. Right. And, right. Uh, and so this part is uh, super important, and we are investing heavily in technology, uh, heavily in uh, artificial intelligence, and uh, I mean, it's quite... Weird that uh, someone who has invented one of the first luxury on page in '99 right. now is uh, the one that is disrupting the on page because wow. now we don't have any more on right. page because we have 3.5 million on pages <laughs> because we have 3.5 million right. active right. customers. We're going to leave it there. Federico Marchetti, CEO at Ux Netaporte. Thank you so much. All right, so we decided to have class outside today, as we mentioned earlier. We're here at Columbia Business School, and who should turn up here but the editor of Bloomberg <laughs> Business Week? Imagine that. Imagine that. Uh, well, and it 
appears, Joel Weber, that this is not your first time on campus in the last couple of weeks. You were here uh, taking a class last week. Yeah, they let me uh, attend a class last week, Business Analytics 2, with Professor Daniel Guetta. Which Wait, means, did you take the prereq? Uh, which means I didn't have to take <laughs> Business Analytics 1. They just let you skip ahead. So that was great, except then you show up in the class and it's like, what's going on here? Are you ready for linear regression? And that's what I got to to sit through Tell an it. hour and a half of linear regression. How'd that go? Honestly, it was amazing because of how well taught that class was. Professor Guetta made it all very approachable. The students were amazing. It was so there was such an ing- engaged group of intelligent people asking really insightful questions. And he would repeatedly be like, "No, we're coming back back to that question in two weeks. Th- just push pause on it right yeah. now." Yeah. So you end up just having this little sneak peek of of what an amazing school that Columbia is. One of the things I wanted to make sure we talked to you about was this notion that we're coming up on sort of the second version, candidly, under your watch of the business school rankings. You have, to be fair, like really expanded this franchise in a big way, invested heavily in an ongoing series of, of stories. Why? Like, what, what do you see in business schools that's so relevant to the business audience? This money shot being yeah. a starting point, right? I, it re- truly, and I mean that in a way, because what we really have, uh, the thesis here is that the nexus that you get between the business schools and the alumni networks and the students that are coming through, that's why people come to business school. You get mm-hmm. a crash course in the, you know, the greatest business curriculum you can get, but then you also get the case study feeling that comes from real-world right. applications. So for us, we look at that, we look at the stories we do in many ways as, as case studies. And, and kind of making the world of business come to life via story is what we do in the page of Business Week, which is not that dissimilar from what's happening in a classroom setting either. So for us, this just feels like the water that we swim in and the air that we breathe in. And Columbia really embodies the spirit because of, you know, we're, we're witnessing it here with, with Mr. Gorman today. Like, this is a powerful place to play. Well, I think about the surveys that you guys do, and you really kind of dice and slice what goes on in a business school community. But it is interesting because you pick, figure out the nuances that kind of make each MBA program distinct. One of them about Columbia is, you know, here you are in New York City. Yeah, so New York City is part of it. I think the big thing that we really leaned into with the way that we've done rankings and really why, you know, 30 years into this, we've doubled down on it and really found the, the, uh, our DNA with it, which is data, mm-hmm. you know, and leaning yeah. into how do we make this data set be extraordinary? And you get that from talking to alumni, from talking to current students and, and other business schools. And you, all of that stuff together, you get... There's, there's messages in that data, which frankly brings me back to that business analytics class, too, that I got to say, <laughs> which is, look, you've got a data set, yeah. and maybe that data set is ever-expanding because that's what you're going to be looking at if you're in a, at a company, right? right? How do you make sense of it? And where are the little nuggets inside of that that, as a business leader, you can have takeaways that apply and benefit from at, at your company? So between sitting in on that class, 200 level, let's point that out again. <laughs> skip skip <laughs> yeah, the first one. Skip the first yeah. one. Uh, but also even being here today, I, like, what's the ethos uh, of Columbia? I mean, I would put this to Carol as well because you worked here and you have a, a great sense of this. Like, what is it about Columbia? New York City, obviously, is a, is a big piece of it. But what is it about this place? Well, I'll bring it back to their tagline. Have you seen that one yet? 
at the very center of business, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I think that really does embody it because here we are in New York. You can't imagine a better setting, setting for a business school when you have the, the real-world applications that are right outside your door. And that's what you saw in Professor Guetta's class was case study, case study, case study, case study. It just is an unending experiment, yeah. right? And, and to be able to harness that with the resources that a Columbia has, whether in the classroom or with the alumni network, Incredibly powerful place. What well, do you think? I well, haven't I been meaning also, to ask you this. Well, I was thinking about when I worked here, and I, I got my undergraduate at Barnard across the street, but I worked at the business school as an undergrad, and I just think also the connection with Wall Street yep. and the role of money, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, money makes things happen. Yep. And whether you're an entrepreneur and you start something, and ultimately you need an investor, you know, that helps you get that started. I, I just think that connection made this school something really special. I, I think that's absolutely right, and that entrepreneur's uh, entrepreneurship spirit here, routinely it's it's among the, the things that uh, comes through in the yeah. surveys and the data that we see. Uh, and, and you see it, you know, in the classroom because that's a place that people can harness it and take it out and apply it to, to right. whatever your big idea is. Well, right. even the conversation we had with Federico Marchetti, I mean, yep. he was a banker who then came here and said, okay, I'm going to start a company. I'm not sure what it is, yep. but I'm going to learn about retail. I'm going to learn about Marketing and learn right. about entrepreneurship, and off I go. And then he right. scales it. Yeah, right? and yeah, and you know, I don't know if somebody could scale that business idea or that business model as effectively as you might have right. had you had a linear regression class that right. was like, you know, maybe you're not going to do it every day, but you're going to probably talking to somebody who can do it for you. Well, and I will say it also the city. You've got retail here. You've got finance. You've got so much stuff going on, and that you know just plays right into the school. Totally, Joel Weber. Uh, always fun to be on the road with you, even if we're not that far. Did you get a grade for the class? Uh, I think it was like a pass, no pass. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and I showed up. There yeah, you are. exactly. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from Columbia Business School. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser right here with you on Bloomberg Radio. I'm only human, flesh is blood, so everything we do at home, work, or play has a digital element to it. Cindy Metz is uh, assistant professor of business at the management group within Columbia Business School. Focusing on management. She focuses, too, on all things digital. So nice to have you here on Bloomberg. Tell us a little bit about um, what's a typical class for you in terms of what you're teaching. It's interesting because uh, the class that I'm teaching is not that much related to everything digital that I study. Um, so I teach managerial negotiations, which is really trying to help students make the most of the interpersonal relationships that they have, obviously negotiating at work, negotiating with customers, their colleagues, their boss. Yeah. But they increasingly so, are using data to do that, right? They do that. Um, so I think it's, it's part of the class. So it's trying to figure out how can I learn about my counterpart? How can I learn what they care about and use that in my negotiation? And I think to some extent, you could actually do that looking at what is it that they do online? Right. Stalking their Facebook profile, looking at their company website. So all these things could technically go into the, the decisions that you make. Well, and it's interesting that this is an offering in, it, in part. It's not surprising. I think we talked to the dean uh, you know, earlier mm -hmm. who was talking about how this isn't just sort of like six MBAs who sort of all look alike getting in a room and making a decision. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, a couple managers, a couple engineers. You've got to be not just, you know, sort of conversant, but almost fluent in the ability to, to talk to lots of different mm -hmm. types of folks from different backgrounds, etc. And I hope that's the experience that the MBAs actually get yeah. out of this class, is that not the same strategy isn't always successful. It's not always the same situation that you can use the same strategy. It's not the same person yeah. that you would use the same strategy. And I think the MBA actually gives them a, a good overview of, like, 
diverse people to, to talk to. Psychology comes into this big. I think about mm -hmm. my sister who studied psychology for years and years and years. And I think everybody always thought that was kind of like a, a side form of study, <laughs> right? But it is being, you know, being incorporated into so mm -hmm. much of what we do. And that includes the business world. Mm -hmm. So I actually get that question a lot when people ask me, well, your degree is in psychology. Yeah. What are you doing in a business school? And I think my answer is usually, well, Like there's people working in organizations. Yeah. Not sure if you've noticed, but there's it's groups. It's like there's group dynamics. It's interesting to see how do people select into organizations. What makes them happy at the job? What makes them productive? So there's a lot of psychologists trying to understand like the dynamics that are going on within organizations. So give us a sense of an assignment or an exercise that you might give in this class. So we do a lot of cases, and I think that's what students benefit the most from, is we throw them into a situation, we tell them, just this is a role, take it on, assume that, that those are your own preferences, and now go and negotiate. And I think the biggest learning that they get is really the feedback from the other students. Right. So they're like, wait, like I lost so much money on the table, I actually felt pretty good about the outcome like after the negotiation, but now that I see what the case was actually about, maybe I see I could have pushed a lot harder. Yeah. So I think it's this feedback that they get from, from the students, and also just seeing like how well did I actually actually perform in the negotiation. And so is there, it feels like in some of these cases, because it's not so clinical, it, there are some <laughs> emotional aspects <laughs> to it. Are you, are you pushing students out of their comfort zones a little bit? So that's the, that's the plan. Yeah. Like you could, I mean, you have this saying that experience alone is a great teacher. And I think to some extent it's true. So I always encourage them to go out there in the wild, negotiate. But the problem is that you, you don't get the feedback and you don't experiment. I would not recommend to any of my students to go into the next salary negotiation and try out something entirely different, something that is completely outside of their comfort zone. So that's what we do in class, and it's just kind of providing the safe space for people to experiment and to say, like, well, this is what I usually do, but maybe there's another strategy that's much more successful. I have to ask you about one of the studies that you did. It got mm -hmm. a lot of media attention. Um, I think you did this with a colleague, mm -hmm. and it basically found out that when it comes to finances, nice guys and mm -hmm. gals fall short. Mm -hmm. What exactly is going on? So the, what we showed is basically that people who have a certain personality trait, which we call agreeableness, so that's the idea. People are nice, trusting, caring, empathetic, but those guys have fewer savings, higher debt, and are more likely to default um, on loans and everything. Why is that? So I think one of the reasons is that they just care more about other people. And I think society has this image of, well, you can either care about money or you care about other people. So there seems this almost a false dichotomy saying, well, if you care about other people, you should not care about money because that makes you a lesser person. And I think agreeable people just place almost too much emphasis on the people side where they're like neglecting their finances. Just think of someone. So don't be agreeable, basically, is the lesson be agree here. I think it's a different lesson. So that, that would be the sad news. Yeah. I think it's because like agreeable people are the people who keep society together. And I think it's the way that we think about money as a society is yeah. just the wrong way. Because yeah. technically, if you care for your loved ones and if you really want to make sure that they have a good life, to some extent, you should be caring about finances. Because right? if you default and if you go into debt, it's not just you who's suffering, but also your loved ones. Right. So I think... It's a good lesson. Is that interesting? It's a good lesson. <laughs> not necessarily something you would think you would learn uh, at business no. school. Sandra <laughs> Motz is Columbia Business School professor of machine learning, human behavior, psychology, and computer science. What a cool job. I want to come take your class. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. Well, Lulu Wong got her MBA at Columbia back in 83. Today, she is chairman, CEO, and founder of Tupelo Capital Management. Jason and I talked with her earlier about some of the big macro issues that are out there and on the minds of investors. 
One of the things that you quickly identified was the ability both as an investor and, and a leader, a business leader, to make stronger connections between the U.S. and China. Uh, yes. That clearly has been a big part of what, of what you've been doing. Tell us what you see right now, especially about Hong Kong. What do you make of that situation? I think it's, it's a very fraught situation, and I hear from friends and colleagues uh, on both sides, and they're both equally grieved. Uh, and I think the way it, it works out is that... Um, I don't think Beijing realized it was going to go this far. Uh, I think they certainly do not want to have a Tiananmen Square. It's a very different world. We live in social media. They cannot have that. So they have to find some face-saving way to begin to calm the uh, the crowds. Um, I think, fortunately, the beef that the demonstrators have is really more with the Hong Kong government Mm. than with Beijing. So I think if we can work through Carrie Lam, she has already withdrawn the extradition bill, and if she can begin to negotiate on the three other conditions that the uh, the protesters have set up, there is a potential to work through some understanding. Lulu, is there a role for folks outside of Hong Kong and outside of China? Because there's certainly been some push among the protesters to involve the United States. In my uh, not-day job, I'm also uh, on the board of Asia Society, mm-hmm. which is really the foremost nonpartisan group trying to bridge U.S. and Asia. And we had been very busy talking to both sides about the issues. I think if we can find ways, the Chinese are very big on faith. They cannot be humiliated. And uh, if there's a way in which they can continue to stay with the uh, one country, two systems, um, begin to uh, exert some, some control over Hong Kong, but not with the heavy, heavy-handedness we've seen, I think there will be a solution. Business leaders and certainly investors are talking increasingly of a decoupling be- between the United States and China. Mm-hmm. Given you've spent decades coupling yes, <laughs> the U.S. Yes. and China in, in many ways, how much do you worry that that... that may become a reality. I think there are many people who are concerned that this is going to be uh, one win, one lose. I still am a believer that it can be a win-win situation. I think right now we have two leaders who are both under short-term pressure to try to resolve some of the problems before their economies crumble. I think the advantage that she has is that he also is playing the long game. And I think he believes that the long-term future of China is very uh, conditioned on China retaining economic, political, not necessarily military, but geopolitical power. The question is, does the economy crumble before he can achieve this? Uh, but he has many levers that are not present in America. Which he's been pulling, especially this he week, we've seen. He has been pulling levers. He's um, moving more liquidity into the system. He's getting some of his... Um, companies, both multinational and Chinese, to begin to try to do more investing in the economy. He's trying to bring more capitals um, investment back into China. Are the expectations from U.S. folks that you're talking to, folks in China, that there will be some kind of trade deal that's done? Or is the fear that I think we keep hearing is that we're going to see China kind of go off with their plans and have its allies and the U.S. will go off on its plans. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to trade and developing technology, what do you expect? I think it'd be very difficult for there to be two fortresses. The world is too connected. The supply chain, uh, the markets, we are interdependent. So Mm -hmm. I don't think we can truly exist separately. Um, I do think that some of the reforms that the U.S. is pressuring China to make are not actually bad for China. Some of the progressives in China have been militating for them all along, but they had been sort of outnumbered by the hawks. But I think with this current situation where she's under pressure internally 
for having managed it uh, in an indelicate way, is going to provide some opportunity for the, the progressive to say, look, it makes sense that we open our markets. It makes sense that we liberalize. And so let's do some of this. We will make it appear that it is our own initiation. We're not being bullied into it. That's very important. The West has to not play the bully hand. Mm. I think that will be very difficult for she to overcome. But if there can be sensitive diplomatic accommodations on both sides, I think it could come out better for both countries. One of the biggest concerns for investors sort of broadening to the entire world, Lulu, is this notion of negative yields, a world where Mm -hmm. pensions and other huge institutional investors are just not making the money they need. Uh Do you see a short-term change in that? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, liquidity around. There is money to be invested. And in a way, that's why many... um, Bears on the U.S. market are puzzled and frustrated that they've been short and the market continues to just want to work its way up. So that money wants to find a place. And in this very troubled world, um, the U.S. and the U.S. dollar seems to be a relative, relative safe haven. So um, I think if we can find some stabilization of the economic situation, that money can go back to work. The U.S. certainly needs to have a capital cycle. We have not been investing in our capital and um, equipment. So I think if we can just get some predictability, stability, I think both China and the U.S. and other countries can put money to work for the economies. People are talking a lot about recession. They want lower rates. In just about 30 seconds, how Uh do you see the economic outlook uh, and the market outlook? I don't think we're headed into a deep recession. I think we are clearly in a slowdown. uh, And when that happens, uh, you get a lot of panic. And certainly the geopolitical situation is very uh, troublesome. But I think the the incredible volatility gives investors great opportunities. When I see a down 800-point day, I am just looking my chops. I'm looking right. at my list of stocks. <laughs> so I you're enjoy. buying. Oh, into the corrections. Yeah. And then you get another 800-point swing the next day. If I have some stocks I'm not so comfortable with, it's a good chance to uh, clean house. And of course, that was uh, Lulu Wong. She is the chairman, CEO, and founder of Tupelo Capital Management. She's been engaged in professional money management since 1972, worked on Wall Street, then started her own firm. But I think there has been a theme in terms of what we've heard from some of our guests, James Gorman among them, Morgan Stanley. I'm not hearing a lot of talk about recession. I'm I'm still hearing about investment opportunities and reasons for this market cycle continuing. And her roadmap for where U.S.-China may go, I thought was Mm -hmm. one of the most nuanced and smart descriptions that we've seen or heard in a long time. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, more from Columbia Business School. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Everywhere is war. It's a war. So we want to talk a little bit about the global economy right now. Ahmed Kendalwal is a professor of global business, focusing on economics, an expert in international development and economics, trade trade liberalization, I can't even get it out, and international competition. You cover a lot in terms of... You know, what is so relevant, I feel like, to the world right now. You're sitting down with a group of students teaching. What are the things that you want to bring to light to them that kind of relate to the real world but bring it to the classroom? Uh, sure. So at Columbia, I teach uh, two kinds of courses. So I teach one core course that all incoming MBA students will, will take. Um, this is a core course in uh, managerial economics. So what we do in this class, which is not so much global related, but are general principles that we, um, that we try to instill, um, is for students to learn the basics of 
how to take data on the market environment and, and try to figure out what prices they might be charging, how to, how to manage their revenue and, and product lines. Um, we consider what are the implications of their business decisions when they are reacting in an environment with competitors and, and, and consumers who may be responding as well. So think about kind of your classic supply and demand mm -hmm. market conditions. Um, one of the things that we try to do at Columbia is to not only show when the market kind of can provide the allocation of resources that we think is efficient, but also to kind of think very carefully about what are the conditions under which the market may not be living up to what we think should be going on. So that would be your, your examples of um, uh, issues of fairness. Um, are, should we have things like search pricing? It can lead to an efficient outcome, but it may not be very fair for, for some consumers. Um, what happens in a market when a buyer and a seller arrive uh, into a marketplace where they've got differences in information. Um, and since this is actually very relevant for very important markets like healthcare, yeah. um, where the provider of the service has different information than, than the buyer of the service. And, and we know that classic economics of the market outcomes can actually can maybe not deliver um, the best outcomes in those situations. Uh, and we also consider things um, related to strategic decision-making. Uh, game theory, which is a very uh, common set of tools that are taught in an MBA program, but we also discuss things like auction, auction designs, um, for instance. So Google and Facebook now mm -hmm. make the vast majority of their revenues off of designing auctions. Right. We will go through the very basics of, of how you would bid in an auction, like the one that Google sets up, how would you set up an auction, and so forth. So that's very much a kind of a, a set of things that we do in, the, in, in, in my core course. Right. Uh, and then you also look at the international sort of trade landscape as well. That's right? correct. So I also teach an elective course on doing business in emerging markets. And there's a starting point if you think about what is different about an emerging market relative to a, to, to a developed country like the U.S. is really one which the markets are not working as, as well as we think. So the capital markets might be broken down. The labor markets might be broken down. There's weak rule of law. And what I try to do is to walk through... Um, the core strategies that a company um, that's maybe based in the U.S. would need to consider as they enter these environments. Um, what are the parts and products and services that might be uh, very beneficial in these environments where the market is broken down? Um, as well as to think about what are the um, what is the role of a business in a society where we where corruption levels yeah. are very high um, and so forth, and what should be um, businesses considering? Well, go ahead, Jason. Well, I just I want to make sure we ask you about this this bit of research that mm -hmm. you did that caught a huge amount of attention, including on the Bloomberg, which was about the effects of the trade war, right. uh, and I think some, if not unintended consequences, some surprising consequences. Tell us about that. Right. So outside of the classroom, I, I as you said, I'm, I'm an international trade economist. Um, I recently was involved in a project where we um, were looking at the impacts of the tariffs on on the U.S. economy. Um, if you think about what a tariff should do, so imagine a country like the U.S. imposes a tariff, um, there's this kind of a sequence of events that happens. So one is the, the tariffs are tax on imports. Um, consumers are going to start to see potentially rising prices uh, on imported goods, so they should kind of switch towards domestic goods. Um, and so that means that there's going to be a transfer from U.S. consumers who are potentially paying higher prices to U.S. producers who are potentially benefiting from higher mm -hmm. prices. Uh, and then the government collects some tariff revenue. And so one of the goals of this exercise was to kind of calculate what is the overall effect and, and what are the transfers that, that are going on. One of the surprising things that we found in, 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 this, in this research was when you look at the, at the data um, and you kind of charted the time path of what happens to goods that are being targeted with tariffs as they come into the U.S., 
is like a really important number for an economist is to understand what happens to the prices of those goods. Um, and we have heard from from the president, for instance, to say who says that the that the Chinese that the Chinese will be paying for the tariffs. And and in principle, that is possible. And the way that could work is that if the U.S. imposes a tariff, the Chinese exporter may lower right. her price down to so, such a point so that the post-tariff price actually doesn't change for the U.S. consumer. And that's possible. And that would be a, consider, uh, a condition under which the, the Chinese is essentially eating the tariff. Um, and, but when we look at the data, we in fact that's in fact not what's going on. Um, the split, of course, could be anywhere between 0% and 100%. And what we find is that the U.S. consumers or the U.S. economy is actually bearing the full incidence of, yeah. of the tariff. It's so relevant considering the back and forth and trying to figure out, you know, who's paying ultimately for this U.S.-China trade war. And I think it's, it's crucial research for everybody to check out. Thank you so much for explaining it. Really appreciate it. Um, Amit Kondawell, he is professor of global business here at the Columbia Business School. Yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy that you love can satisfy. Perfect song. And before we wrap up our day here at Columbia Business School, we have one more treat. The founder of Siggy's, who when he came to the United States, I think first for an interview at the Columbia Business School and then to actually go to school here, he kind of missed something from home. Yeah, and that was yogurt. And so now his yogurt, it's available in tens of thousands Mm -hmm. of locations around the world. Uh, The founder is Siggy Hilmerson. He is here with us uh, at Columbia Business School, your alma mater. Welcome. Thanks Great for to ha- have you. Thanks for having me. All right. So what are your feelings sort of coming back here? What do you remember most clearly about your time at Columbia? Uh, it's great to be back on campus. I love the campus. It's beautiful. And it's, uh, you know, I live in the West Village now, so it's like pretty close. Yeah. It's awesome to just jump on the subway and come up here. Uh, what I miss, uh, well, what I remember most vividly about uh, Columbia was to come here and all the amazing people that would come through campus. Uh, I'm a big basketball buff and uh as a kid used to wake up in the middle of the night to watch you know the bulls play michael jordan and i remember very uh vividly coming to campus one day and david stern who was the nba commissioner was giving a talk to the students and i when i was a kid that whole world felt so distant and then you come to columbia and these people are just there giving you advice and it was just my mind was blown and i felt so lucky i got to be here and i was just I remember it very vividly. I was so grateful, and it was just kind of amazing, you know. Well, and what's interesting is, I mean, obviously you started your own business. When you initially went to business school, I mean, you started at a consulting firm. Did you think at some point while you were studying, man, this is what I want to do is have my own company? No, I, I, I didn't have, like, a clear vision of what I wanted to do post-business school. I, I'm sort of like a, a, a stubborn guy, and I have an independent streak in me, so I knew I would probably do something by myself. I just wasn't quite sure what it was. And after business school, I actually uh, started working in management consulting. Right. But I think I was a very poor consultant, you know. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I couldn't consult very well. So uh, I was sort of thinking about what to do with my life. And I had started making the yogurt, you know, the skier, which is sort of the classic Icelandic yogurt from home. I sort of started making it as a hobby. Uh, And sort of long story short... I had had a professor at business school who I was friendly with, and he sort of encouraged me to explore it and start it as a business. And that's sort of how it came about. And he backed you. Yeah. And so Michael, Michael Van Bima is his name. He basically became my business partner and first investor and, and, and was on the board. Uh, 
all the way until we sold the company last year. So there's a rich Columbia connection yeah. there. What was it that, though, you learned at, at, the, at Columbia Business School in terms of now running your own company and starting it? Because it's not always easy in the beginning. Yeah, it's actually, it's a, it's a funny story, and it's another sort of one of those sort of serendipitous events, is that my background was in econ, and I, I sort of opted out of some classes when I started at Columbia, and I needed to fill my schedule. And I had never done anything in supply chain. And Columbia has a great supply chain program and, and, and great professors there. So I just took a bunch of those classes, not having any idea that I would ever use it. But one of the most important things when you run a, a consumer product business, CPG company, is supply chain and logistics, right? Uh, a business in that industry can be broken if you don't have your supply chain correct. So one of the most important things that I learned from Columbia was actually supply chain. Yeah. But that was kind of almost by luck, you know, right. that that happened. So um, very thankful. It, it feels like you did when you created this company anticipate a place where we are now when, when it comes to food and ingredients and people's mm -hmm. willingness, candidly, to pay up for high quality and to really care about where their food is coming from. What did you see sort of looking around the corner that, that convinced you that this was the way to go? Oh, uh, that's, that's pretty easy to answer. I, I, when I came here, I not only missed skier, the Icelandic yogurt, I noticed that a lot of the yogurts here were very sweet. Yeah. And the, the most popular yogurt in America at the time had more sugar per ounce than a can of Coke. And the difference between Coke and yogurt was that, you know, people drink Coca-Cola and they kind of know it's not healthy, but they do it anyway, right? With yogurt, it had the halo of a health product, so people were totally indiscriminating of eating it, even if it contained more sugar than the Coke, right? So I thought, this is like a contradiction here. Like, people need to know about this, and I need to do something to fix it. So when we started the company, I wanted to make the yogurt, but not make it so sweet yeah. that it was equivalent to candy or soda. And that was a challenge. People were sort of not super receptive at first, but then it really took off, uh, sort of 2012-13. And why do, you think it, why do you think it took off? And, and why do you think that sort of megatrend really set in? Did people just finally realize, oh, that's terrible for me. I shouldn't be eating so much sugar. Like, what, <laughs> what was the catalytic moment? Well, I think, I think it was just sort of generally people came uh, to realize this. I think people had been so focused on fat as yes. the enemy uh, and not focused enough on sugar. And all the suddenly sort of the drumbeat of uh, a lot of dietitians, doctors who work in diabetes you know, personal trainers, all sorts of people who work in health, that sort of started trickling off to mainstream media and getting a lot of attention. And that really helped us uh, as well because we had been around for a while when that started happening and had been saying the same thing. So, so we were sort of lucky to catch that yeah. wave. I do feel like there's been an enlightenment when it comes to food, right, in terms of Absolutely. what's in it. Because I, I was talking with you before we got started. I mean, I loved the video online. I mean, there's not a lot of ingredients in it. And I yes. think more and more people, we talk about it, about our kids are turning around the containers and saying, okay, what's in something? So fast forward, you've got this company. People are like, yeah, I don't need all that sugar. I need just kind of healthy ingredients in something. There's more competition. So how do you continue to get the shelf space and set yourself apart? Well, we were, we were very lucky in that regard because when we started, nobody was focusing right. on that. Uh, and it, the, the weirdest thing I actually found was that uh, we didn't get a lot of competition. We, we heard sort of rumors that some of the big companies looked at our space and said, eh, people are not going to like that. You know, oh, this is a cool little brand, but people are not going to like it. It's not sweet enough. 
Uh, and then all of a sudden, we, we sort of are starting to have a meaningful share of the U.S. grocery market, first 1%, then 2%, then close to 3%. And then sort of the competition came in. Yeah. So I think our luck in that regard was a little bit of that we managed to establish ourselves before the competition first came over in. advantage yes so it, that it I makes think a difference exactly so that kind of helped fight the fact that we don't have as much fun as some of the bigger players got and and, and, and and the like why you know I just think as somebody who runs a company just 20 seconds um, you know your advice to other entrepreneurs and just quickly plan for success yeah. there's, there's nothing worse than having the demand and having the things out there that people want your product and not being able to supply them. So build the infrastructure. Very right. cool. And focus on the supply chain. Siggy Hilmarsson is the founder of Siggy's well-known uh, yogurt brand at a store near you, a product of this fantastic business school where we've been all day. And I was just thinking, what is it that sets Columbia Business School apart? It's because you have so many different industries and things happening. I just think about the diverse alumni that we've talked to today, and that is really a big part of what the school is all about. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday. I'm Carl Master along with Jason Kelly live uh, outside Columbia Business School in Manhattan. Teague Sanders is with us, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Whittier Trust on the phone from Los Angeles, who also happened to uh, get his MBA at the Columbia Business School, studied finance. Uh, we've had a great day, uh, Teague, here at the school. Um, take us back. Uh, what do you remember? What do you recall from your time here in New York and at uh, Columbia? Hi, Carol. Hi, Jason. You know, I had such a great time there. i got to say, it's actually ironic that Costas was my uh, stats professor back in 2006. And, you know, it was great <laughs> no because, kidding. Wow. Oh, yeah. So anything I say that's wrong, we can attribute to him. Um, no, but it was a great time. <laughs> and what I, what I really enjoyed was the community, the ability to give back. Um, you know, obviously meeting Warren Buffett was a highlight. But also a buddy of mine, Ken Wong, and I started the Better Haves Club there, which is uh, for spouses and and uh, your partners. And so we had a great time being able to contribute. So really enjoyed our time there. And anyone listening, I'd highly recommend applying. Yeah, well, we've had a great time here uh, at your old stomping grounds. It's it's interesting to see, you know, where people have gone. You know, we've had everything from entrepreneurs to obviously the CEO and uh, chairman of Morgan Stanley, who started here. I think he was here a few years before uh, you were. So tell us about, because that was a conversation we had uh, with James Gorman uh, that anybody can uh, check out later on. But, you know, he was talking about a world that feels like it's still trying to figure itself out. You know, businesses becoming more cautious while consumers are still very confident, not very cautious at all in a lot of ways. What do you see in the markets out there with these various inputs? Yeah, no, we, we completely agree. And it's interesting because if you look at the PMIs, right, there begins to be a divergence between services and manufacturing. And a lot of that can be attributed to Trump and, and trade wars. And, you know, businesses are much more reluctant to spend in the face of uncertainty. But, you know, the U.S. consumer, you know, still very, very large part of GDP growth here in the U.S., 
very, very uh, confident, very, very positive, and they're outspending. And so, you know, as long as they continue to to do that, you know, we think that the uh, there's not a, a strong likelihood of a recession in 2019 or even into 2020. Um, but there is definitely beginning to see some some cracks in, in some of the overall market fundamentals. Well, and I love when we, Jason and I, get a chance to talk to people from, you know, around the world, around the country. You know, there you are in L.A., of course, a major city, a major economy, California, right, a huge economy. What are you seeing, though, any cracks in terms of the California business environment or market environment or economic environment? You know, we haven't seen a ton. I mean, we track, obviously, uh, nationally, but locally we haven't seen a ton of that. Obviously, you're seeing some questionable practices out of San Francisco trying to nationalize PG&E, which, you know, has its other, other debates and merits with that as well. But, you know, locally, we haven't seen large cracks. We're still seeing lots of cranes, lots of building, uh, lots of infrastructure being built. So, um, you know, below the surface, there are a, a few more intricacies as it relates to the shift from, uh, from growth to value that we're seeing. Um, but those are, you know, those are what you'd expect to see in this late, uh, this late in the overall cycle. And so when you look at uh, the various factors that you factor in when trying to assess what to do with a portfolio, uh, what do you look at most from, from a data perspective? You know, we had a jobs report last week. Obviously, the Fed is trying to sort of figure things out. We've got an inverted yield curve and have for a while. Like, where, where do you sort of look for the clearest signal of where we are in the cycle? You know, it's funny. All of those things matter, right? But here we are trust. We're long-term yeah. investors. And I will say that one of the things from the value investing program that I learned and continue to apply is, you know, looking at business fundamentals and looking for quality management, quality growth, quality return of shareholder capital. So we still try to focus, you know, understanding where we are in the overall cycle. We still try to focus on business fundamentals. We want to buy, be buying companies where we can take advantage of what we call time horizon arbitrage, which is, you know, most of the, the world's economy, most market traders have a holding period of between two seconds and 20 minutes. And so we try to take advantage of that and just say, okay, is this company going to be able to grow through any type of market environment and any type of market cycle and really try to find quality companies? So not to not answer the question, but I think it really bears uh, repeating that it's about business fundamentals over the long term. Well, you know, it's interesting, too. One of the alum that we caught up with was uh, Lulu Wong of Tupelo Capital Management. Been investing for a long, long time, runs her own firm and has for a long time. You know, and she says in terms of the market swings, I mean, she's watching them. And, you know, when the market sells off, she says that's an opportunity to buy. (laughs) You know, and when the market swings up higher, it's an opportunity to maybe get out of a position that she's been in for some time. I am curious. There has been a fair amount of volatility. How aggressively are you buying on those dips? You know, we're not buying aggressively because, again, most of the time we try to stay fully invested. But we are cognizant of uh, is making sure that you're not misunderstanding market signals. And so, again, we do try to focus on the fact that there is real value in some of these short-term signals. Um, but, you know, where we do have capital to put to work during periods of volatility, we are actively looking at, again, quality companies, quality management. Um, and so you, you just really kind of want to stay focused on the longer term. Um, but that's, it's an important point, and one that we try to counsel our clients on is that dips are normal. You can see a 10 to 12% decline in a market where overall it goes up 20%, and those are times where you want to be most opportunistic with your deployment of capital. And so, you know, your long-term investors totally uh, taking that into account, Teague, 
as you look even a year, year and a half into the future, we're entering into the real thick of an election cycle, presidential okay. election cycle here in the United States. You know, it feels like some big existential questions facing the country. You know, do you does political risk factor in any meaningful way into your long term thesis here? You know, political risk is something you can't ignore. Um, but as we look back over multiple market cycles, most of those political turmoils tend to be um, short-lived in their duration. Um, and so you have to be cognizant of them. I mean, look, Trump could have potentially created a, a situation or a problem that only he can solve. Um, but at the end of the day, we do focus on that. But you can't be really investing based on that. It's very, very difficult over the long term to be investing based on what you think the government is going to do. And it's actually one of the, the key indicators that we try to remove from our analysis to say, look, you have to be cognizant of what's going on. But let's use that as a buying opportunity because the transitory nature of tariffs and trade wars actually do in the long term end up presenting very good buying opportunities. Great stuff. Teek Sanders is Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager out at Whittier Trust. Joined us on the phone from Los Angeles, a proud alumnus of the institution where we are sitting, Columbia Business School. And I right. love the fact that the now dean uh, taught him everything he knows about statistics. So. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.